My father was always a Newcastle fan, and I was proud. I was a real manager. I became besotted with football. I was a bit of a star, a little prodigy in my little village. So many failed. You think managing is easy? I was in the manager for eight years. Eight years. George, I don't think there's been a manager in the game like me. I loved Ipswich and European nights with Porto, Sporting Lisbon, PSV, and obviously Barcelona. I came home and I, I, George, I think I did a hell of a job. You know, the northeast means uh, a lot to me. Maybe the legacy, which is just as important to me, is that I'm going to try and help people fight cancer. So you know, I, I've been lucky. This is Bobby 90, a four-part podcast series brought to you by The Athletic to mark what would have been Sir Bobby Robson's 90th birthday. My name is George Culkin, and towards the end of his life, I worked with Sir Bobby on his final book. We looked at photographs, stirred memories, turned pages. It took Sir Bobby on a journey, his journey, from his early days as a miner's son in County Durham, through his mazy career in management, back home to Newcastle, and finally as his health declined, leading what he would describe as his last and greatest team, the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation. These recordings brought to you by kind permission of Sir Bobby's family have never been heard before. In this third episode, after his exploits abroad, Sir Bobby comes home. Home to England, home to the North East, home to an ailing Newcastle United. time I was away, George, I always asked, how did Newcastle get on every every single Saturday? So all the time I was away, 50 years, whether I was at Ipswich or England or, well, Ipswich and England, that's, that was 22 years. Yeah. I always wanted to know how they went on. When I went abroad for 10 years, they were always, um, my first question, how's United going on, to be honest? Never ever thought I'd come back. Never wanted to, really. I had such a full life where I was, you know, it should dominate my life and England dominate my life. Then I went abroad, so I was in employment with big clubs, you know. So I had a very fulfilling life and, you know, my life was very occupied with the, the people that I worked with. Newcastle was always just in the background. Never won anything, had they? Really, basically, you know. But it was my club, it was my father's club, they were, it was my club. So I had a, had a, a bond, with, you know, to it. Uh, of that, there's no doubt. When I finished at PSV that year, at the, nine, at the end of the 1998-99 season, I really came home to retire, basically. I came home because I wanted to come home. I'd been abroad 10 years. I would always want to get home and see the children and the grandchildren. And the, the longer we were abroad, the less chances we had of, of, of doing that. So there was always a time when we knew we would come back. But because I kept getting bigger jobs with a bit more money every time, I kept going, didn't I? Yeah. And then, you know, by this time I'm now 66. Yeah. So I really came back to retire. And the season started, and for the first time I wasn't employed in any football capacity for 50 years almost. I didn't like it. I didn't quite like that first Saturday. I went down, I went down to Ipswich to see them play 
I think they played Barnsley. I think I rang for a ticket or something like that. And, oh, come along and went to, went to the match and uh, I saw the match and I went home and I just didn't like sitting in the stand watching a game of football. I enjoyed it, but I was not involved in any shape or form. Ah, right. I had nothing to say. Bit frustrating. And I, I remember coming home to Elsie and said, Elsie, I don't like this. And she said, to him, Well, you'll have to because you, you know, you're almost unemployable now. You're 66, so who's going to take you on board? And I think she did. Let's just sit, 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 and enjoy your retirement. You know, sit and smell the roses. But what I didn't notice, of course, straight away was that Newcastle were having a tough time with Rude. Still, never thought about anything until I heard he resigned. And I knew the job was available. And I didn't play, I thought, hmm, that's interesting. But I knew to go there, it would mean breaking up all my Ipswich connections and my home and all my friends. And to leave Ipswich would be a bit daunting, really, a bit, a bit difficult. So I was well known in the area. And I quite liked it. Elsie didn't like it as much as me, but I liked it. And I had all my friends there. And then for about two weeks, the, the, the job was available. And every day that it wasn't filled, it became a bit more wantable by me. But I never applied. I said, if I'm home, they know where I've been. They know what I am. If they want me, they'll, they'll approach me. If, if they don't approach me, they don't want me. So I'm not going to you know, get turned down, as it were. And that was my mood. I wasn't going to apply in case they turned me down. They know where I've been what I've won, they knew I was England manager, they know I'm a Durham boy, and if they want me, they'll come for me. If they don't want me, they don't want to come for me, I don't want to go. So I said, I'm going to just sit tight and not do anything. And it went for about three weeks, George, didn't it? I think there was, it, you, yeah. Yeah, it went for about three weeks. And the results were poor. And I was actually um, at a little local nine-hole golf course, just hitting some balls when my phone rang, my mobile phone and it was Elsie saying Freddie Shepard had been on the phone this is the first contact I had with him he's his number he wants you to ring him and they're on the way to London and can you meet them in London and I think I said well what do you think and uh, oh, she said I don't I don't know, you know, you'll do what you want to do as you've always done. So I actually said, right, well, I'm going to go to London, I'm going to meet them. So I, I rushed in my car, picked up my balls and, and, and got in the car, went home and found out what the first train was. I got on the train and told Freddie what train I was on, where he wanted to meet me, and I met him. And then I, I, I sat down and thought, well, Who's my competitors? Who's around that they might go for rather than me? I knew my age, so I knew they'd be against me. And they would probably think I was too old. And, I, and quite frankly, there wasn't too much around. I just felt, you know, where I've just come from, what I've been, what I've achieved. As long as they thought 66 years of age wasn't obscene, I would have a chance. It's a lovely story, the fact that as you say, you sort of come back to retire, but then you end up at the club that you'd that you'd watched as a 
It was a dream job. I made my mind that, you know, as long as the you know, sensible contract, I would take it. I wouldn't come home without the job in mind. Yeah. Well, I was, I was really quite thrilled about it, I was, and I was determined to try and get the job. So I went there optimistic that I would do myself justice and I would take the job, and that I wanted it, having been three weeks without being in charge of any football club for the first time for 30 years. Yeah. So it was the first time for 30 years that I wasn't involved in football as a manager. Yeah, which I didn't like, I tell you, I didn't like it at all. I didn't know whether I would survive without it. I wouldn't have gone to Barnsley or, with no. respect, or, you know, I came home to retire. Yeah. I was 66 and still very energetic, lot of, you know, very fit, very, very young thinking. I had me, you know, my marbles and everything. And I knew the game. Felt there was one, one good job left in me, but I wouldn't come. I wasn't. I didn't come home to take any job. I said it was. We'll come home and see what happens. If one of the big clubs comes in, I might be interested. But if none of the big clubs comes in, I won't take on anything I don't want. I finished up here. I ain't going to start again. No. So actually, it was the perfect club, and my wife has always wanted to come home. So that was an asset. Actually, she didn't want me to take on another job, but she wanted to come home. I'm in the home, I'm in the home here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that she was quite keen to come north, where a lot of wives wouldn't have been, helped. And I, I, you know, I signed that day. Loads of big names were in the frame for the manager's job, but in the end, the choice was a simple one. It was the man who wanted it more than anyone else, the man who deserved it more than anyone else, the man who was born to be the manager of Newcastle United. I had to be back at full pelt, yeah, yeah. to be honest. Uh, I mean, I didn't know the club. It had no academy. It had poor training facilities. In fact, it had dreadful yeah. training facilities. Yeah, exactly. Dreadful. And all of the clubs had, you know, made moves in the right direction about academies and training grounds and training facilities and state-of-the-art, you know, situations. Newcastle had done nothing, absolutely nothing. Yeah. And uh, I came back to one little office that we all shared. Yeah. One of us, all of us shared. Yeah. Tony Tell shared it. George Taylor shared it. The coaches shared it, and I shared it. Yeah. So I couldn't make one private telephone call. And I stood all there. I said, kick them all out. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, I knew the, the enormity of the job, and I, and I knew the, the size of the, of the city, I knew what the suppose were like, I knew it was a hotbed, very challenging, great expectancy, huge support, great enthusiasm, black and white, you know, through thick and thin, but the club was a long way from being in the top six. I mean, I just come from clubs that had the, that system installed where they had facilities. They had a, uh, a youth policy, and I, I operated Ipswich successfully on finding local players, developing and preparing, finding your own, buying one or two that you had to buy, I suppose, but basically the youth policy was the backup to the club. And when I came here, we had no training facilities, but no academy. We didn't have a one brick building for an academy. We no. didn't have anything. I set the club right. They needed my type of manager to come back in to restore 
and put up what the majority of those which I'd just been working for had. I met the chairman. I said, Chairman, we want a players' room. We want um, administration rooms, manager's office, separate from everybody else, where I can have a bit of privacy. I can make personal phone calls to managers and players and do my business without anybody knowing what was going on. And I forced the issue on the academy, and I forced the issue on the change of training, the, t- the change of the train position facility. We had one pitch, we had one pitch at Chester Street, a running track. Yeah, I remember, I remember. And then we had Parkland, where they walked the dogs, where the reserves used to train, by the way. Yeah. And, and he, 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 I think about it. So when I came here, you see, George, and my hands were tied a bit. Yeah. I found that very strange. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Fortunately, I had a spell with England where I wasn't dealing yeah, with players yeah, and negotiations yeah, of contracts. Yeah. And when it went abroad, a lot that was that a lot that was taken yeah. away from me as well. Yeah. But how I operated Ipswich was Talk way about. different compared to what I operated in Newcastle. Saturday night, having a pint after the match, and I was drowning. Well, I can imagine, that, but I, I had to avoid that trouble. <laughs> yeah, okay. I get kind of uh, yeah. besieged. Yeah, Because yeah. of all the places that I went to, George, in my life, even even with England, in a way, where you get instantly recognised and not interfered with, but people yeah. clamour clam around you was Barcelona and Newcastle. Yeah. So if I walked down the street here, when I was my manager, yeah. I would be besieged. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that happened to me in Barcelona. I was instantly recognised, and before I knew I, I would, there'd be 25 people around me. Whereas in PSV, Eindhoven, and Ipswich, and uh, Lisbon, you could get away with it, you yeah. know, to some degree. Yeah. But here in Barcelona, you couldn't get away with it. Instantly recognised and people yeah. just, within within a minute there would be twenty five people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I think their enthusiasm, their um, the fact that it's so boisterous and so expectant, sometimes gets in front of I think practicality and being realistic and being knowledgeable. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One offsets the other, doesn't it? Yeah. You know. It's so expecting things gonna work out all right and it's, it goes beyond being being knowledgeable. Yeah. But very forgiving George, aren't they? I find oh, they yeah, yeah. are very forgiving. Yeah. yeah. Is that they have huge disappointment but within, I don't know, two days, one day, you know, one week, it's forgiven. Yeah. And they start again, don't they? Yeah. It was wonderful to return, George. I came home, I wish my father had been alive. I didn't know the board, I didn't know the halls, I didn't know Freddie Shepherd. I'd met them a year before that when I finally decided not to come back home after Kenny Dalglish, shortly after Kevin left, and to give the job to, to, uh, to Kenny, because I was already on a strong contract, and I was in Barcelona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... You know, yeah, well, you said before you... I, I waited 18 years to go there, I ain't yeah. going to leave there, there. Yeah, yeah. And I had a, good, had a good team. Yeah. You know, we, we, were, we were at the top, Real Madrid, Barcelona, fighting it out like that. I turned them down. So when I finally came, they were in the process of going from 37,000 to 52, 
So I saw the, the ending of the stadium being completed. Yeah. And it was marvellous, 52,000. Wow. Sold out. Wow. Cathedral, George. Cathedral, yeah. Absolute cathedral. I tell you what it reminds me of, George. I was, you know, I worked in Spain. Yeah. And I, do, have you, I don't know if you've ever been to Bilbao, have you? I don't think I have. Well, anyway, what I'm, what I'm telling you is that you go to Bilbao to play, which I did with yeah. uh, Barcelona, and you're walking through the streets, or we were in the bus, of course, and then suddenly you see this, wow, look at that, and it's the, uh, it's the Bilbao Stadium. It's the Bilbao Stadium. Which, which seems to stand up above the city. Right. And it has the same aspect as what yeah. Newcastle has. And every time I see Bilbao Stadium, it reminds me of Newcastle and yeah. Vicky Verkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, suddenly this stadium here is there, isn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah. If you come over the bridge... Oh, whichever way. Yeah. You think, Jesus, look at that, yeah. that's a cathedral. Yeah. It's a stadium. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the Bilbao Stadium has the same effect. Whereas, you know, the, the, the new Camp and the one at uh, Real Madrid, which is called the Bernabeu, they are bigger stadiums, but they... they you don't, you they, don't see them until no, you rise up. No, you're right again, and yeah. then it's there. Yeah. But Newcastle is different, and Bilbao is different. Yeah. They just stood out there like a beacon, yeah. like an Eddystone lighthouse. Yeah. yeah, and it's, I mean, and it is, it's fitting. It's fitting that the stadium should be so prominent. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But the, the, the player content in the club to win things was law. And the chairman said to me, Bobby, there's no money. We had money, but it's been spent. So you've got to work with what you've got. Not a problem. I said, I had no money to Ipswich, but I had time. And uh, he said, I don't think you'd be able to do it. And I said, fine. Well, I'll show you otherwise. So I got stuck into it, George, which meant being on the pitch. I was, I was not the manager, but I was the coach. I never missed a day. I planned the training schedules, and uh, had working staff around me. We had, in my opinion, about maybe seven what I would call blue chip players. Yeah, yeah. And they were they were given given and Harper, uh, Warren Barton at the time, Gary Speed, Robert Lee, who I finally brought back into the team. Why he was left out, I never know. Shearer, of course, Nobby Solano. Shearer hits it all! An absolute thunderbolt from Alan Shearer. That is 30 for the season. That is 300 career goals for Alan Shearer. And what a way to hit a landmark. An absolute rocket from the skipper. And he is delighted. But Alan would be everything a manager would want. Yeah. You know, if you had, well, not 11, but I'll tell you what, if you had five, I mean, if you had 11, yes, but I mean, if you could manage five Alan Shearers in your team, I don't think you'd lose much, you know. Or everything that you, you'd want to coordinate together in Alan. If you had five of those on the pitch, you know, you wouldn't lose. So he was certainly um, a player's player, but he was also a manager's player, without doubt. Someone you could depend on, someone totally reliable, steady, good pro, good habits, had a clout in the dressing room, spoke sensibly, spoke uh, forthright in his, in his comments, a mature boy, 
was a role model, perfect in preparation, training, perfect on timekeeping, punctuality. I think good in the dressing rooms, oh, I didn't spend too much time in there, you know. I thought it was one area I didn't want to go in, not too many times, but I did go in, of course. Um, highly respected by the people. And, and of course, a very damn good player, top player. You know, someone that you could rely on, he's a winner, he wanted to win, give everything, and never saw him not try. And would always produce, so, I mean, unfortunately for me, I got Alan towards the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. When he was actually, you know, slightly... Well, uh, he had to be, I mean... Yeah, well, his age, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I, mean, I mean, when I took the club over, he was out of the team, struggling. And I remember, you know, saying, John, John Carver, when I first went there, John... Why is Alan out of the team? What, why did Rude leave him out of the team? Was he jealous of him? Did he not like him? And John said, no, he said. This is what John Carver said. He said, no, not really. He said, uh, he wasn't afraid of him, because Rude was you know, a big guy himself. Yeah. He said, he honestly thought that Alan was actually sliding yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. And that his career was coming to an end. I said, did he? He said, yeah. He said, I don't think it was personal, you know. He honestly thought that Alan, you know, was coming to the end of his, his career. He'd had a, a good long career, but it was coming. And I, said, and, and I, and I saw that his age was 29. He'd done his anchor and he'd done his cruciate. With me, he got his tendonitis. That's he right. had, he had yes. tendonitis. And he had to have an operation for tendonitis with Stedman in Colorado. But his cruciate and his anchor were two very serious injuries, yeah. which he did yeah. very well to recover from. And I thought it was part of that, but... When I came to the club, I could see that, you know, he, he, he was, he, he had an able body. He just got static. Yeah. He forgot about working the channels. Yeah. He thought, I'll stand still let the ball, you know, come to me. He didn't go after the ball. You know, he always came towards the ball and he went away from the ball. I just put him right. And he, he just responded. And he, and he did for me, didn't he? I mean, he did wonderfully well for us. Yeah. He did great. I, I, I liked him. He's great on the pitch. Never late. First on the training ground, last off the training ground. I could see why he, why he was Alan Shearer yeah. and why people respect him because he was just a proper boy. They made him England captain. Well, you don't do that unless yeah. you're the sum about you. Yeah. You tried to sign him when you were at Barcelona, didn't you? I did. Was that from Blackburn? Yes. And was that when he went to Newcastle? Went to Newcastle, yeah. They said he wasn't for sale. Don't put it in the paper. We don't want him disturbed. I gave um, Ray Harford my word, which I kept. I wouldn't announce that we were tried to sign but were rejected and uh, I kept my promise and about two weeks later they <laughs> he went to Newcastle I said, Jim, Jim's going to take time to shift all this around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me tell you, you we've, got, we've got to get results and keep our neck above water. Yeah. You ain't going to give me 30 million, are you? you know, there is that pressure in, yeah. in, in that sense. And, but it's an exciting pressure. That's yeah. what I find. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, within a few weeks, I, I said to my wife, I love this job. I did. And uh, it was just the thrill of being in charge of a big club, which we knew 
we had to win, we had to succeed. We hadn't made the club a giant again. We hadn't yeah. put it in the top six. Yeah. Yeah. And it should be in the top six every blinking year. It really should. No, I know, I know, I know, I know the type of football they would like, they would like to have here. And the type of play you've got to try and buy and find. And we tried to do that. And Kevin tried to do that. And maybe Kenny tried to do that. I think we all knew the demands of the public and what sort of football they, they would like to see. We tried to give them that. And we didn't have a big squad, you know, not, not really. We had a, we bought Laurent with a bit of pace. You know, we tried to give the crowd a bit of, bit of excitement. We knew on the way back he was bloody hopeless. But we knew that, that way, free kicks, corner kicks, the explosive shot, you know, getting the ball in the box, he would do a bit for us. Nobby was still in Philly, you know, still was Nobby. Shearer came back to form. Well, Gallagher kept, kept us going for a little while, but then we... Bellamy, of course, we bought Bellamy. Shola came in. We bought Lualoa for a small money, a million and a bit. Bellamy, sort of a spiky little character, but... Well... But one you'd want in the team, not out in the team. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, every, everybody liked him at three o'clock on the side afternoon, including Alan Shearer. Yeah. He was a skillful player. He wasn't just about pace. Had, no. You know, put, put Bellamy in the corner with the ball against an opponent. He'd get out of that. Yeah, yeah. Madelon wouldn't. No. He passed to the left back. But Bellamy had an inventiveness in his game where he could, if he was in a cul-de-sac, he'd get out of it. Yeah. He could beat people and uh, change the pace, feint, double feint, wriggle, pace, explosion, out. Yeah. He knew where the ball should be. He, he liked the ball between the goalkeeper and the centre-half. He had the pace to get there and he loved flick-ons. We also loved, he loved, you know, good movement where the ball would be played in the space for him without Alan being involved. He was Alan's knock-on guy. Yeah. Every time Alan knocked it on, you know. Yeah. And Alan knew that. Alan knew that, you know, he could feed him. So it was a nice combination in terms of that, but he was also a great searcher of the ball on his own, you know. Yeah. yeah. On his own runs. Yeah. Not just getting on the end of Alan's flicks, but on his own runs, he was good. And he was, he was a better finisher than what his record yeah, proves, I'm yeah, telling you. Yeah. He should have scored more goals. Yeah. So it was a long process, George. Yeah. I mean, it took me three years, didn't it? I mean, we went from last to halfway, then halfway again, and then we hit the jackpot, yeah. then went third, fourth, fifth. Yeah. And I, I, George, I think I did a hell of a job. Yes. I, a hell of a job in the show. I mean, within three years, we were in the top three. Is, is Newcastle a club where it always seems to me that where the highs are higher and the lows seem lower? <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it is, George, in a way. The, the expectancy here and the hope, you know, is so high. So that when it's gone that way, and it looks as though, you know, you, we're going to win something, the thrill is in the buttons, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, everybody's hyped up. Yeah. And I think we can't be beaten and we're unassailable. And, and then when it happens that we've been knocked out, the depth of... Of, of despair that it kind of drops to is just as low going that way is yeah. is it is that way when it's yeah. going that way isn't it? Yeah, exactly. You know the highs and the lows are severe, aren't they? Yeah. Very severe. Yeah. I enjoy my life here as much as I've enjoyed anywhere, really. And when I lost my job, I was as low as I could be, and I knew I lost a, I lost a, like a big prize, you know. Well, I have cause to regret it.
was fantastic. The stadium's complete. It's actually ready for the right owner with the right money, with the right manager who makes good buys and buys well, sensibly, and can know the game well and be tactically adept. And, and, and it's there. It's there for a manager to be successful. It really is. It's. It's just a case of getting it right. We have the public, we have the stadium. I think that the owner or the chairman and the manager are crucial to each other. If that's a good partnership and, and they're backing each other up and they're supporting each other, there's no reason why it can't be in the top four all of the time. My father knew that I actually became manager of Newcastle United. He would not believe it. He'd been so proud. He was a summer soldier all the way to the games. <laughs> he, he really would. So Bobby Robson launched his foundation in 2008 following his fifth cancer diagnosis to find more effective ways to detect and treat the disease. Part of Newcastle Hospital's charity, the Sir Bobby Robson Foundation works within the NHS and in partnership with other leading charities and organisations. It funds cutting-edge cancer treatments and innovative cancer support services, including the clinical trials of new drugs at the Sir Bobby Robson Cancer Trials Research Centre. Sir Bobby described his foundation as his last and greatest team. He had no idea how large his team would grow or how much it would go on to achieve. For more information or to donate, please visit sirbobbyrobsonfoundation.org.uk That's sirbobbyrobsonfoundation.org.uk Thank you.